welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me. I'm Katie Daly. Southard Audio founder Mike Southard was a commercial pilot and a flight instructor before his overriding interest in music led him to a career in live sound reinforcement almost 40 years ago. In this episode of Bluegrass Stories, Mike talks with Howard about his career. You know, I just started doing sound uh, for uh, a nightclub, and then then it's when the nightclub went out of business. I guess that was the official start, which is more like 40 years ago. But, yeah, 35, 40 years. Who's counting? Well, before we get into sort of like uh, the dirty bits of, of, of the business, um, Southern Audio was not your first career. I'm I'm curious. Are are you a product of uh, of the Harrisonburg area or the Shenandoah Valley? And uh, what 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 were you doing up up until the point uh, where you founded uh, Southern uh, Southern Audio? And uh, what was your education like uh, uh, prior to entering the work uh, entering the workplace? Well, you know, Southern Audio actually was sort of my first real career, but I, out of high school, um, I uh, uh, went to, uh, uh, my parents had, had, a, had uh, agreed to finance my, my college, and uh, I got interested in aviation, very, very interested in aviation, and uh, talked them into allowing me to go to flight school instead of college. And so I was in commercial flight training uh, for two years in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my, my plan was to, um, to become a, an airline pilot. And uh, when I finished up my training, I was a flight instructor or a licensed flight instructor and a commercial pilot. And, uh, but at that time, which would have been about 1976, is when all of the um, military Vietnam pilots were coming back into the workforce, and there was a glut of pilots. And uh, so I taught flying, which is what you do, is you, 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 know, you get into some job where you build your hours up, but there was no, there were no openings whatsoever in aviation and commercial aviation. Matter of fact, they started using a, uh, almost everybody who was hiring decided to use a college degree as a, as a cutoff point and weren't even taking uh, giving interviews to any pilots that didn't also have a college degree. So after starving for about a year teaching, I, I, I quit and went to college to try to just go through and get a degree. And during that time, I ended up uh, working as a first a roadie for a, a local large sound company. Uh, it was a company called Sound Plus that uh, owned by Phil Summers. Phil uh, went on to become a, quite a famous sound engineer. He went on to work with Dolly Parton for, uh, live sound engineer that is, uh, Dolly Parton for years and years, and then with Alan Jackson. I think he's still with Alan Jackson. And, uh, so he, but he started his business here in the Shenandoah Valley and then eventually picked up everything. He, he went on the road with Ricky Skaggs, and uh, then got, made a bunch of Nashville connections and then moved to Nashville. So when he left, I bought some of his equipment and, and um, 
and started my own little thing, and that's that's kind of how it all got started. I know you, and I know of the company uh, basically because of ob- my obvious interest in, in bluegrass music. And it seems like uh, many or most of the festivals that I attended, in, including uh, the large IBMA World of Bluegrass, um, you guys had a um, have a very large presence in, in all of those uh, festival activities. And you, you list yourself as an audio production company. I, exactly what is it that you do and, and maybe some things that you don't do? Hmm. Um, well, our company, it started off as primarily just doing live sound reinforcement. Um, and that's what, and that's still the thrust of, of our businesses. And, you know, 80 or 80 percent of what we do is just we own, you know, large amounts of equipment and trucks. And we have, well, when I, and, and we have, have, make that had <laughs> a staff. Um, so we would just go to various uh, um, live sound events, not necessarily all music, and but the, the vast majority of music and, and all genres. You you know us from bluegrass because my background is in bluegrass. I'm a banjo player. I, I taught banjo for a long time and and played in a band for a while. And that's, so my my you know love of music started as a, a acoustic bass, and so that's where all of my initial connections were. But uh, we also um, do. Uh, we, we, we sort of evolved into a, a full-service production company. That is, the services that we don't provide in-house, uh, we subcontract. So in-house, we do um, live sound reinforcement. We do backline, which is, uh, you know, drums, guitar amplifiers, that sort of thing. And we do video, which, you know, projectors and screens and LED walls. And uh, then we also provide packages, which include stages. We have a relationship with a couple of staging companies and with a couple of lighting companies. So um, if you're doing an event, uh, you can call us. It's a one, one-stop shopping kind of thing, and we provide everything that we can under our roof, and then anything else we provide through our uh, contract um, contractors. Now you you mentioned your your early interest in um, in in bluegrass, and actually I, I didn't know that you played banjo. I don't know why that is, but uh, shame on me, I guess. Uh, were were your first forays into um, sound reinforcement bluegrass, or or were they basically just local clubs? Well, uh, sort of both, actually. My you know I played in the band myself, and from that playing in the band is how I sort of got connected with with Phil Summers as I was the person I was referring to earlier and, and started working with him. Um, and then, um, I, I used to go to the Birchmere frequently and loved the place. And so I, uh, was working as a sound engineer for a local nightclub called the elbow room. And, uh, we eventually actually tried to turn it into a small Birchmere down here. We, we started booking national, Bluegrass acts, and you know, we installed a, a sound system, and we followed the same sort of, of uh, the, the same way that the Birchmere decided to to handle things. You know, we we uh, made sure people stayed quiet, and everything was you know, it was it wasn't standing room only, and uh, and you know, it it worked pretty well for a couple of years, and uh, 
but the um, the owner of the nightclub eventually um, went out of business, and uh, and as I, I had much of the equipment that was in the nightclub had come from Phil and from me, and so I had, uh, as I mentioned before, I just bought out the remainder of that equipment and some additional stuff and a Volkswagen van and just started driving around doing uh, sound for very small events and and uh, just built that over the years. And and how did you build that o- o- over the years? I mean, we're you're you're close to forty years in in right now, and in um, looking at the uh, uh, the gallery of um, work uh, on your website that you've done, surely, I mean, you weren't out there on your on your own hawking the business, were you? I mean, or or or, or did people just flock to you? based on the quality of your reputation? Well, it was really 95% word of mouth, um, and, and that's the truth. I mean, you know, and, and that I think is, I think that's pretty true across the, the industry. Any success you have in this, in this type of business, it comes from, from people that you've worked with who tell other people um, that are in the same business, and it just gradually goes that way. I this, you know, I, I never, as I said, I, I never sat down and said, I'm starting a business and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. This was sort of, let's try this and see how it works. And the only thing that I did when I started is I committed to taking 50 cents of every dollar that I made for 10 years and putting it back into equipment. And I stuck to that through thick and thin. No matter, you know, if I made $100, I took $50 and looked at, where, where the, the biggest bang for my buck would be to add this wire or this microphone, and I'd go buy it, and I just kept doing that for 10, for 10 years. But to answer your question, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I would, I would get a job, and I would do my, the best that I could, and, and if they liked the work that I did, they would tell somebody else, and, and it just was really an organic, long-term growing through just uh, word of mouth and doing a lot of events when before uh, COVID hit, we were, um, you know, doing upwards of four to five hundred events a year. We're assuming that, uh, or at least I'm, I'm assuming and hopeful that we'll be back to something that l- looks like normal sometime in 2021. I, I don't think you or I can predict whether that's actually going to happen or not, but um, I'm certainly hopeful of that. Before, um, before COVID hit, um, how many employees uh, were you carrying? Well, that's a that's a little uh, a gray area there because in our business, especially as a regional company, um, you know we are we're not a touring company, we're not a large national company, so we had about four to five regular people that were with us all the time. But then we had a, an extended network of of stringers, um, people who worked for us when we got busy. Um, and worked, but worked for lots of different companies. And there's a there's a, a lot of that in the industry. There's, um, you know, there companies like mine don't have a staff of 30 or 40 full time people. So, but we sometimes have busy weekends, busy enough that we need 30 or 40 people. So, there's a, a large workforce out there that that uh, you know gig day workers. And uh, so we had probably, as far as our audio staff is concerned, another. 10 people that we would work with on regular basis and then on labor staff another 15 or 20. Um, so, you know, but the, the core of our business is, 
is five or six people, myself, my partner, and then uh, four or five other regular engineers who've been with us a long time. And uh, we should mention, I guess, uh, Jason Mesterka is is, uh, is your operations partner. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Jason's Jason has been with us with me for, I guess, coming up on fifteen or twenty years now. I don't know the exact amount of time, but he's a he's a full partner and will eventually take over the the whole business. And <laughs> was supposed to have October thirtieth of this year, but that also got set back because of COVID. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, o- over the years that I've been interested in bluegrass and going to festivals and um, being as I have uh, um, uh, more than slightly geekish tendencies, I've always managed to sort of poke around corners and and uh, take a look at hardware and take a look at software. Uh, old uh, large format consoles always got me drooling, um, and and I and I can't help uh, but have noticed that that uh, technology, of course, uh, changes and and awaits for no man, and particularly in the last. Oh, five years or so, or half dozen years, that the 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 technology, the hardware has gotten smaller and smaller. The cables have gotten fewer and and fewer, and uh, less less re- reliance on walkie talkies and more reliance on iPads. And how how do you guys manage to keep abreast of the of the technology and how do you make your choices about which which technology to to invest in do you just go out and say well here, here's a here's a cool looking toy let's buy some of those i i don't imagine that's the case but how do you base your decisions about new technology oh boy well that's quite a that's a that's a that's a lot there um that you were talking about yeah it, the things have changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years and uh Probably the biggest dramatic change for me is I probably own uh, probably 60% of the stuff that I own I can't operate right now. <laughs> Be, because it's too old or too new? No, because it's too new. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I stopped, I came off the road for the most part about seven or eight years. I put my 30 years in and I about had enough of it. And, uh, so, and the, the, the you know for for decades the technology stayed more or less the same. I mean, you know, the knobs would be at different places on the console, but the knobs did more or less the same thing. So you could walk away for five years and come back, and everything was pretty much where you left it. But now, uh, if you're not out there actually doing it um, every every day or at least every week, then it's it then you have to you have to invest serious time in keeping up with with what's going on. For example, you know, you mentioned the the consoles, mixing consoles, going from analog to digital. Well, um, you know, every company, you know, in in the past, every analog console sort of resembled every other analog console. But now um, the interface from one digital console to another is quite different. Um, so, you know, if you're if you become competent on a on a Digico console or uh, you know a Midas console, you you would be very fluid on those two consoles. But if you jumped onto another brand, it would be a learning curve. It'd be some time that you'd have to take to before things become automatic again. And you know when you're doing a live mixing, it almost has to become automatic. You you need to be able to sort of have an intuitive movement to your brain and your hands to. Uh, you know, to to think and hear what it is you want to change, and then 
if you've got to stop and, and process, you have to invest quite a bit of effort to, to keep up with, with all of the interfaces on the various different uh, consoles out there. And I rarely mix a show anymore. Uh, I, I haven't done that. And uh, so it's kind, of, it's kind of gone past me. I mean, you know, the basics are also there. So if I decided that I wanted to go out and learn it, it would just be a matter of sitting down on the console in, a, in an office somewhere and, and studying it for a few hours. But, uh, you know, the other thing, of course, it's, that's changed in a huge way is, is everything, the, everything is networked now, where, where you know, the, the, the days of, of copper transmission of audio signals is about over. So, you know, if you're going to be an audio engineer these days, you you pretty much got to have a, a solid background in, in, in networking as well, something else that I didn't grow up with at all. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm more in a position the last few years anyway of, of sort of steering the ship rather than in the, and doing the nuts and bolts stuff. And, and we've got... Uh, you know, young guns out there who grew up with this stuff, and they speak it as a second language and enjoy it. And uh, and you would ask about how we decide what equipment to buy. Um, that is really that's a very hard decision that we have to make. Um, and because you know, once it's uh, you know, once once you've committed to a certain brand uh in as far as large purchases are concerned you're stuck with them for a long time uh, because it's a major major commitment uh money wise um and so it's we agonize over over those things an awful lot uh and and uh, and what what's a long time in your business i mean is it five years or is it more than that or less than that in terms of equipment investment probably uh you know, with a speaker system, probably closer to 10 years. There's no, you know, there's no fixed amount. Our last major system that we purchased is coming up on its, we've liquidated a substantial amount of it, but it's coming up on its 10 or 12th birthday of, of, of working with us, or maybe even a little bit more than that. But, you know, it's a combination of, of, of sort of Looking at what the market is asking for, looking at what the you know the the uh, uh, you know in our in our position now we don't mix that much. Mainly, what we're you know when we're doing national acts, we are providing uh, equipment for uh, a band that has specified what they want and are traveling with a, a mixing engineer who walks in and says, "This is what I want to see." And uh, so that has a, a big influence on, on what, we, uh, what we eventually buy is, is what the market is, you know, what the engineers want to see when they get there. Um, then when you have the, you know, you narrow it down to this general list of, of X brands that are accepted, uh, we call them rider friendly, the contract technical rider uh, when we receive it, it will have a list of equipment that they want to see and, a, and sometimes a list of equipment they don't want to see. Um, and <laughs> from that, you, you sort of uh, get an idea of what, uh, you know, what engineers will accept, what they like, what's, you know, what's new that's, that's exciting to them. And then you go through the process of, um, uh, you know, what fits our business model, what, uh, you know, does this brand offer the size and scale of, of what we're getting? 
as you know, we just went through this two years ago. We just we just upgraded our main speaker system uh, from TurboSound to Martin um, uh, two years ago, and we've been in that very uh, very intense, uh, money hungry part of the of the business. Uh, uh, so you know, we uh, this is this is something that that I'm real familiar with because we we you know we auditioned. You know, five different uh, companies and narrowed it down to two and and then uh, between those two it was you know it really got down to it really got down to very small differences before we finally made our our decision and and do you audition um, hardware um, offsite or or do manufacturers basically ship to you to have you put it through its paces well, it depends on it depends on on what you're talking about. In, in the case of a speaker system, we we were e- either attended or were presented with demos from every manufacturer that we were looking at. So they there were there was uh, either already uh, a demo scheduled somewhere which we went to and attended, or they would set up a demo for us, uh, you know, outdoors somewhere where we would be able to go listen to. You know, uh, usually recorded music and in a in a real environment and and walk around and you know you, you can look at specs on paper and you can listen to what other people recommend, but until you stand out in the field and and turn it on and and uh, and listen yourself, you don't know. Um, so we spent we spent the best part of a year going from from one auditioning one and then another and then comparing them in our heads and then throwing another one into the mix it's it's a yeah because you know we're, we're going to be using uh we're going to be using this equipment for the next 10 12 14 years and it was important we think we made a really good choice the company it's a british company that's also been around for decades and decades um and uh we've been very happy with it and clients have been real happy with it so far we're just looking forward to being able to get out there and use it again. And uh, speaking of um, hopefully getting out there quickly, changing the the focus a little bit from uh, from gear to 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 people uh, in in more normal times. I mean, if some young person were to come up to Southern Audio, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, I'd like to have a," you know, I think I'm interested in this business. Um, hire me. What what would you be looking for in that individual? At the beginning, when I was when I was first running the business, the the difficult part was finding people who already had a good knowledge of of uh, the technology and music, and you know because there there wasn't much to choose from. And uh, so back a long time ago, it was simply you know, are you, you do you know how to operate the console? Can you drive a truck? Can you you know uh, can you repair whatever whatever the job needed? And and what uh, I think I've evolved from that a lot. Uh, you know, right now, I, I mean, not, for the last good while, I, I finally figured out that uh, the most important thing, the most important quality for an employee is, has really nothing to do with the technical ability, or at least little to do with technical ability. It's more, are you a good person? Um, you know, we've if if you if you want to learn how to operate the equipment and you've got a basic ear, um, you know, you you are musically inclined. I can teach you to do that. Uh, but what we what we you know what I can't teach you to do is to be a professional and to show up on time and 
to be flexible and and be uh, you know reliable and and all of the qualities that you need to 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 keep clients happy and and have a a, a good business. So you know what I'm, I'm not, the first thing that I look for is you know is is this is this somebody that that uh, I would want to work with again if I worked with them on a, on a job. Um, and uh, you know I. I, uh, and, and then, if they if they happen to have some technical background uh, in, in addition to that, well, that's all the better. But uh, we've had for the past 25 years, we've had a um, an internship program with the music industry department at James Madison University, and so every year we have many interns. There's <clears throat> in the music industry. There's some of the music industry degrees that require. Uh, an internship to to graduate, and so we've been working with them for a long time, and that we found that to be a really a fertile place for new talent. As a matter of fact, Jason, my partner, was one of the first people who who um, did that with us. He was an intern uh, with music industry uh, at JMU a long time ago, and ended up that he was he was one of those guys. He had all of the all of the qualities, you know. He was. He uh, knew nothing about uh, sound at all. Um, literally, he was an oboe player, um, music a uh, music major, and but he did this because he thought it would be interesting. But he was a good guy and smart and ambitious and uh, and reliable and uh, you know and he fit in and and then he learned everything else you needed to know. And there's been so it, you know there's been a mix of, of employees over the years. Some have come that have been highly uh, with, with a lot of uh, background, and, and you know, and uh, that, that works out well. But if you're taking somebody who's just a, you know, walking in off the street, as you said, then then you know, the, the conversation, the first half hour conversation, to see what kind of person I'm dealing with, there's as as important as anything else. So no no specific uh, education requirements um, at all. Uh, None. No, I mean, you know, I couldn't even tell you. The educational background of most of our employees—I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, it, uh, you know, it, it's if they. It, what matters is, as I said, if they, uh, if they are good people and they can learn how to do the technical end of it. That's all I need to know. And knows how to drive a truck, or at least qualify for a CDL, I suppose. Well, uh, even that, you know, we, we, have, we have certain employees. I mean, it, you know, we have to have X number of our employees who are willing to drive a truck. And some of them just don't want to have any part of it. Almost all of them are willing to do it a little bit, but we have some that will and some that won't. And, you know, we, 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 work, we work around that. Uh, you know, every everybody that works for us has done it, but we've got a couple who mm-hmm. don't mind it and do it. Uh, you know, have this CDL license, and some of them don't. Uh, as far as Southern Audio goes, your 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 reach, uh, ge- geographic reach. I mean, it's not like you're next door to Nashville or even Raleigh, North Carolina, or uh, Washington D.C. How how far afield of uh, of the Harrisonburg area um, do you conduct business? Well, we we. We, we're, we are a regional company, and we sort of call ourselves a mid-Atlantic company. Um, we, you know, we have we have a regular client in Michigan, um, the Wheatland Music Festival we've been doing for decades, and uh, 
we've gone down into Florida and we've gone, you know, west into, into Tennessee and New England. And, but, you know, the, I would say that 70% of the business that we have is within 250 miles of where we are. Um, we're, you know, our, we're really located in a terrible place for a sound company. I mean, we're, you know, I, I'm, I'm, we're in Harrisonburg because I'm from Harrisonburg. Um, and uh, and you know there, we have we have our local university which is a real important client for us, but uh, you know eighty percent of everything eighty or ninety percent of everything that we do involves a drive. I would say that you know we're we're primarily six to seven six to seven states, and then uh, we'll go further than that if if uh, if the work is there. And and again, as I know you from um, uh, seeing the company at uh, bluegrass festivals, approximately how much of your business is bluegrass, old time related, and and how much of the balance is um, other genres? Well, uh, I, think, I don't know if I could just spit that number out. I mean, you know, when I started doing this, we were eighty percent bluegrass festivals because that's what I was interested in. That's what I that's where my skill set was. You know, I. I still find that the engineering portion for acoustic music for large audiences, the skill set for that is unique and uh, and completely different than anything else. And uh, that's the reason that we did pretty well at it because I I was motivated. I know what it's supposed to sound like, and and I had some 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 technical chops, and I was able to make it sound good. Um, but you know that has changed now. <clears throat> Over the years, uh, to probably five to ten percent of our total work is is bluegrass work now, and and you know it's because there are there's a very limited number of bluegrass festivals that are are, are large enough that it makes sense for our services there. Uh, you know there there are a lot of bluegrass events that are small and medium, and uh, you know at, at the scale where we are right now. Uh, it's a it's a very odd pricing situation out there in in smaller events. I mean, you know, we pay our employees pretty well, I think, and there are events frequently <laughs> that call up and say, um, "Where we've got a concert, we'd like you to do it." And which I say, "What's your budget?" And they give me a budget that would not quite pay for two employees um, without any gear, and so that's. That's the reality of it. So, so there's sort of a uh, in in bluegrass events. It has to be a pretty good size event for our company to fit. And there's only a limited number of those in our area. So, you know, for us to grow, we had to naturally had to to grow in in other areas, and that's that's the way it was. So we do, you know, we do a lot of. Uh, colleges and university events. We do a lot of uh, spoken word graduations, convocations. We do a lot of music festivals. We do a lot of one-off concerts, um, and every literally every genre. We do a, we we do a lot of, of country music because you know we're in Virginia and there's a lot of there's a lot of it here. And uh, uh, yeah, but we we you know the, our bluegrass clients and friends. We've been We've been with them for a long time, uh, a lot of them. And, you know, Randy Wine, of course, is a, is a, a long legacy client, and uh, we've been working with those wonderful people for 
for decades, and uh, and we, we hope to keep, you know, we hope to keep doing it as long as the uh, as long as the events are out there. But there's not a lot of new business um, in the in the size of events that uh, that we do these days. Let me let me let me ask you a, a, a semi loaded question here. I'm I'm assuming that 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 you. Uh, um, as, as a listener, go out uh, or or used to go out when times permitted it to go out and listen to live entertainment and and perhaps walked into a venue or an event where the sound was just absolutely cringeworthy. Is is there such a thing as uh, the three worst mistakes a, a venue or an event can make with regards to uh, sound reinforcement? Oh, oh boy, uh, boy, that is loaded, and it's it's broad too. Three, the three biggest mistakes. Um, I'd like to I'd like to think about that and get back to you, but if I've got to do it off the cuff, um, well, you know, the, the the first and most obvious one is 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 it being too loud or not loud enough, and that's that's so subjective, and it's also. Um, it's also a factor of the equipment you have at your disposal too. I mean, if you're in a small nightclub and it's very likely to be too loud in the front and not loud enough in the back. Um, sometimes that's out of the hand of the engineer, but you know, I, I uh, sometimes it's obvious. You know, if you look around you and everybody's is is cringing on the loud notes, you know that it's being mixed too loud. And if uh, if you can hear, you know, if you if you well, and you know when it's not mixed loud enough too, and you can't hear it. The other mistakes, I, I would say that overmixing, uh, that the engineer sort of feeling obligated to be doing a lot to earn their money. I, riding, riding the faders? Well, that, yeah, and, and just, you know, there, there are some times when you have to ride the faders. There are some times when, you know, the, the act dictates what the engineer has to do. But you, but that that is different every show, uh, and it might even be different with the same band from show to show. Um, and I see sometimes, you know, people get into this routine of of you know they're 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 used to uh, approaching mixing one way, and and that's the way they do it, regardless of what the circumstances are on stage. Sometimes you'll look over and the guy's busy, and he needs to be. Because uh, there's a lot going on up there, and there's, and sometimes you look over and the guy looks asleep, and, uh, and that's what needs to be done at the time. Um, you know, everything's uh, if it, don't break it if it's if it's not, you know don't fix it if it's not broken. Uh, and number three, I'd okay, I'll, I'll I'll let you off the hook for number three, but but I, but I I will tell you that uh, before I made contact with you about the interview, I had a very brief conversation with uh, with your partner and and just sort of said, well, I I have an idea that I'd like to interview uh, interview Mike, and uh, your partner said, have Mike tell you a story, a story from the road. Now, Jason will probably deny that he told me that, but I'm asking you now for a story from the road. A story from the road. You know, every time there's, there are so, you know, there are hundreds, but I, I uh, let's see, a story from the road. Um, you are familiar with the phenomenon of tapers, people who come to concerts with uh, that, that want to, 
that wanted to make a tape of the concert. And uh, it's, it's become sort of a joke over the years. You know, it's the holy grail is to be able to be allowed to, to tie into the console and get a, uh, you know, get a board tape. And, and that's become a can of worms. And, it, and it's always been a can of worms. But, you know, there's a combination of, of the, you know, the artists want no part of it and the, the engineers don't want to. Certain companies and bands are very taper-friendly and others aren't. And we as engineers who are just there for the event get caught in the middle of all this stuff. But, um, but so we did the Winterhawk Bluegrass Festival for 10 or 12 years. Uh, and, um, you know, that was another, that was a festival where, where people, uh, there was a lot of people who wanted to tape. And we always had people coming up asking to tie into the console, and we just had to politely say, no, I'm sorry, we're not allowing that. Uh, so uh, I was uh, um, back in the days before Allison, was, Allison Krauss was traveling with an engineer. I would mix her sets whenever we ran into, into them on the road, and they, they were the closing act for, um, for Winterhawk on a Saturday night. And so I... Uh, um, at that time, we were using a distributed sound system, and that basically means that you have a main PA system, and then you have speakers located out in the audience that are uh, on uh, that are that are time aligned, and the object is uh, to not have one main speaker system that can be loud enough to go all the way to the back of the audience because it becomes too loud for the front. There are other there are other ways to to deal with that these days, but back in those days, the the way that you did it was to put delay stacks, which were other other speaker system locations. In our case, we had a main uh, we had a uh, a stack of speakers right behind the mix position um, in the middle, and then we had two small other small ones uh, up the hill at Winterhawk. I'm, I, I'm assuming you've been to Winterhawk at some point. Oh yeah, the predecessor to uh, Gray Fox, Abs- absolutely. Yeah, so you know how it's kind of a, 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 a semi-steep hill that goes all the way up. Oh yeah, I've been up and down that hill several times. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so um, we're, we're finishing up Allison's set, and um, somebody comes and sticks their head in the booth and says, "Hey, this, the delay speakers at the top of the hill aren't working." And there was, you know, we were, by that time we were at Encore and there was, you know, there was nothing I could do. The hill was packed and I just said, well, okay. So um, we shut down that night and the sh- when the show was over and the next morning I came in early to troubleshoot the, the, uh, the, uh, the speakers and I uh, turned the system on and turned all the speakers on and the speakers in the back were just going, and I was well. That was a noise that I had never heard before. So um, we, the amplifiers for the, uh, for, the for the final delay speakers were in a rack uh, in the in the uh, in the in the, the, the delay stack behind me. So I went out and started just poking around at things. Anyway, I, I go out to the amp rack and I notice that coming out the bottom of our amp rack is a wire, and the wire goes to the edge of the scaffolding and then goes underground. And it pops up again about 30 feet away next to a blanket. Well, some taper had climbed into, our, uh, into the scaffolding at, at the speaker stack behind 
the mixing booth during Allison's set, probably at the beginning, and had taken a screwdriver and had disconnected the terminals to the signal going to the back speakers, attached his own wire to it, ran the wire, a little trench all the way back to his blanket, hooked up, up to his tape recorder, and had recorded Allison's show. In so doing, they had uh, turned off the rear speakers. I'm sort of speechless right here. And, and for, I'm not sure if this will, just for my own edification, was, was that a line-level signal, or was that? That was a line-level signal, and I guess they had either gone into a line-level on uh, on it that you know, I don't know how they had had adapted it, but uh, so anyway, the funny part was we decided we'd set up a sting operation, and we just left everything sitting there. Um, <laughs> so we we had security uh, placed at a couple of different places, waiting for them to come back the next morning. They were too smart for that, uh, so we never caught them. I feel optimistic. You know, I've told my staff. You know uh, that uh, 2020 is a write-off. You know we're we're currently operating at three to four percent of our normal revenue uh, for the, for this time of year, and that's going to be the, the case throughout the year. We're you know everybody's laid off. Everybody's doing other things right now. We're we're all we're doing is just trying to pay our utility bills and and the taxes that pop up, and we're hoping that all all of our compadres in the business are able to hang on tight but you know i feel like i feel like 2021 will be back 50 percent you know by the end of the uh, middle of the summer i think things will ramp up and i'm counting on a, a pretty decent end of summer and fall and, and early winter of next year and i think 2022 80 to 90 percent and you know it would it would be 100 percent except for who knows what's left I hope I'm wrong, but I think there's going to be a lot of promoters that that don't make it, and uh, you know, the our, our, a lot of our a lot of our income is university based, and I think the budgets are going to be slashed on on that. And uh, so, you know, I think we're going to be. I'm I'm looking at three years. I, you know, 2020 is just to write off. Uh, 21, if we do 50 percent, I'll be very happy and. If we could back up to 80 to 85 and 22, I'll be happy about that. Not happy, but, you know. Yeah. Um, and then so, uh, you know, I, I hope it's better uh, than that, but that's, that's, what, that's what I'm expecting, and that's what I'm telling our guys that, uh, to, to expect. I typically end these conversations with a question like, "Well, if if I was so and so and and had in my mind to start up an an audio production company, what advice would you give?" And I'm assuming that your advice would be for today, realistically, don't do that for now. <laughs> Hold on a bit. Well, uh, you know that's been my advice all along. Uh, you know, I. I uh, um, the sound business is really an awful business model. Um, you know, the, I, the people who are in it um, are in it. The people who are in it now, and I'm, I'm going to just make a broad generalization here, and you know how much trouble that gets you in. Yeah. But for the most part, the people who are in it are, are, are in it because they've been able to survive a long time and they love it. Um, but if you really look at the numbers, uh, what we do, you know, if, if I had to start it all over again, there's no way I would start it all over again. 
there are so many other aspects of the business that you know that the that you don't have to completely replace everything that you own every 10 years and that you get back a reasonable return on your expense and, uh, and you know your 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 the dollars that you invest um it's uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I, and I hate to say that, but I, I think there's plenty of work in the business. But if if, if I, I would not, if 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 somebody's got a hundred thousand dollars that they want to invest in a business, and they want to uh, have their highest chance of making a living with it, I would put uh, starting a sound company very near the bottom of the list. <laughs> but you know, if you love doing it, and it's something, and I did, you know, I mean, I I you know for. I I don't love it as much now <laughs> because I just did it too long. You know, I mean, there was 20, 20, 25 years where my, you know, where I would get up at early in the morning and and uh, and you know check the oil on the truck and drive the truck and unload the truck and sit there at the console, you know, off and on for sixteen or eighteen hours and then and drag myself to tarp the trucks. I mean, tarp tarp the speakers and then go sleep for four hours and do that again for four or five days and then drive 12 hours and, and have three days off and go do it again. And, and you know, I, I enjoyed 80% of that. I, you know, when I was sitting at the console, <clears throat> sitting at the console was a joy. I mean, it, it was a privilege, and it was a privilege that people don't get much now anymore. You know, the, the days of, of a person starting a sound company and actually getting to be the person on the mixing console, um, for for the for the larger acts are, are pretty much over and you know the uh, they um, bands discovered that if they want to have a consistent sound they got to hire a sound engineer and and so they got somebody on their team out there that's making sure that uh, you know that they're working only for the band and uh, so you know the golden age of, of me being out there and you know in in, in one afternoon and, and as I mentioned before you know mixing Allison and mixing Ralph and Bill Monroe and Scene and you know and and in other genres a lot of other acts that I that I loved uh, those those days are for the most part gone and now it's 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 exciting in its own way. That was Mike Southard of Southard Audio talking with Howard Parker. During this COVID break, Mike has taken advantage of the downtime to return to making music. He replaced his old handmade banjo with a new Deering Silver Clipper and can be heard, like only a banjo can be heard, learning some of his favorite tunes in his family room. Thanks, Mike, for taking time to talk with us. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Bluegrass Stories.